Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. At every level, in every area of our lives, Lord, and we would truly be being saved. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing, we're going to look at several verses here in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to go all the way through verse 11 together. And the first thing I want to talk about is in these two verses is our faith. Um, If you're here this morning, then I'm going to make an assumption that you have some level of faith in your life, that there's some belief that you have. Now, true, if you're a teenager or a kid, you might just be here because you've been forced to be here. But... Even obeying your parents and coming, that's already some level of faith, some level of trust, um, because it's faithful obedience. And I want to talk about the faith that we have in our lives. And I really want to challenge each one of us, uh, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long you've been a believer, if that's one day, if you're in the process of becoming a believer right now, or if you've been a believer all of your life, I want to challenge you about our faith. Do we have a goal to our faith? And what is the goal of our faith? So Paul starts out here, he says, Now I want to make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. In other words, let me point out to you, let me make known to you the truth of the gospel that I preach to you. So what he's getting ready to say isn't just a repeat of the gospel. But he wants to point out the truth of the gospel. What's the purpose of the gospel in our lives? What is the goal of the gospel's work in our lives? And obviously, it's that we might be saved. But have we really embraced that goal? Do we really have that goal for our own lives? So he says here that I preach this to you, and you received this word. This is a really important uh, Greek term here in the original that uh, is written in English here as received, and it's the normal word for received, but this is a word that has a special prefix on the beginning of it, and it strengthens this word received. And this word received is actually kind of a technical term that was used in Jewish learning, and it was a school term a term that you would get when you went to school that they would talk about and what it meant to really learn. So it is actually the act of a disciple. A disciple is a pupil. A disciple is a student, one who is under a discipline and is learning something, okay? So it's the act of a disciple who learns God's truth from his teacher. And for the Jews, it would be from a rabbi. And the way that they would learn, you know, they didn't have notebooks and write things down. They didn't have computers. They didn't have smartphones or any of those kinds of things. The way that they would learn chiefly was by listening to what the rabbi taught them, memorizing what the rabbi taught them. They would learn by repetition, okay, and it would become a part of them. And at a certain point, they were expected to assimilate that truth into their lives. And that's what it means to receive it, that the truth that the rabbi or the teacher is teaching becomes a part of my life, and I live by that, and it becomes my truth. I begin to possess 
that knowledge personally in my own life. And this is really what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's really what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Many people think that they have been saved, and I'm not going to call into question whether they're going to go to heaven or to hell uh, in particular right now, but if you're on the path of salvation, if you're on the path of, to heaven, then this should be the hallmark of your life, that you're growing in this truth. It's not just that one day, a long time ago, you repeated a sinner's prayer, and then it never became reality in your life. But it's that you made a decision to come to Jesus, a decision that began with him making a decision to call you to himself, that you received Jesus because he received you, he drew you into his circle of disciples, and New Testament Christianity is a life of discipleship, that we are growing in the truth that Jesus has taught us, that we are living in that truth, in the truth of the gospel that Paul says, I preached to you. He says that in this truth we stand, and by this truth we are being saved. It's a process of salvation in our lives. In the scripture, and I've said this many times, but in the scripture, uh, this verb, uh, to be saved uh, is, is used in three different basic ways. On, in, in some passages, you'll read that I or we or you are saved. It's past tense. It's a done deal. We have been saved by grace, right? But in other passages, you read that we are being saved. It's a process of our lives. And in other passages, you read that you will be saved, okay? And that's really important because this is a path that we are on and it has a very definite beginning. We are saved. I'm not questioning whether you are saved or not, right? But that salvation is not going to be complete until Jesus Christ comes back and we are raised up from the dead. And so we are in the process of being saved, becoming more and more like Jesus. So the if that's in verse 2 is really important, okay? Because it says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. We have to hold fast to the word that has been preached to us. Now go with me just for a minute over to Romans chapter 5. I want to show you three words that are really important. Three words that are really important. They are peace, grace, and glory. Peace, grace, and glory. So in Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, we read, Therefore, having been justified by faith. So to be justified means that you have been put in a right relationship with God. You have been reconciled to God. Okay? Uh, some people like to take the word justified. I've heard this since I was a little kid and say that it means it's just as if I never sinned. Justified, get it? And that's, of course, not what it means in the Greek or something like that, but it, it does kind of help us understand what it is, that Jesus took all of our sin upon himself, and we have been made just. We have been made right in the presence of God. So it's past tense here. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, through Jesus, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. 
So we actually see all three tenses of salvation here. The past, the present, and the future. The past tense is called justification here. The past tense is called peace here. We have peace with God. We have been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, God's not mad at you. Okay? Jesus took all of your sin, of our sin, upon himself. And when he went to that cross, the scripture tells us that he was on that cross for six hours, from nine in the morning approximately till three in the afternoon. And from noon until three, the scripture tells us that the sky became dark. It was not a solar eclipse because a solar eclipse cannot occur physically when there's a full moon and Passover is always at a full moon, okay? The sky became dark. It was a supernatural darkness that came over the land because God put all of that judgment on his son, Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb. And so Jesus cried out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not forsaken because of his own sin. He was forsaken because of our sin. He received the judgment upon himself and became the sacrifice for our sin. So we have peace with God. We have been made just. We have been justified. But then it also talks about the present tense. Because it says that through Jesus, we have obtained our introduction. You know what an introduction is? An introduction is just the beginning of something, right? It's not the end of something. If something is introduced, you expect uh, there to be something that follows after that and leads up to, to, to an end. So we have re received our introduction by faith. So notice that the justification, the beginning, the past tense part of it, it comes by faith. And the present tense, the introduction into grace, it comes by faith. And it says we stand in this grace. And then it talks about the future salvation. It says we exult in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in this hope of the glory of God. And so we have these three words. Peace, grace, and glory. And you could put an equal sign between each one of them. Because peace equals grace. And grace equals glory. And glory equals peace. God's peace. Jesus said, my peace, I leave with you. Not as the world gives peace. But my peace is a peace that goes beyond all understanding. It's what the Hebrews called, and if we were reading the scripture in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and everyone knows this word, shalom. And it means way more than the absence of war or the absence of battle. In fact, you can have this perfect peace, and you should have this perfect peace in the midst of battle, in the midst of war. Because God's peace is his wholeness. It's, his health. It's, it's what he gives us in his body and in his blood. He makes us whole. He makes us complete. He makes us as one. It's God's integrity. It's that we are justified and made one with God. So we have his peace. And his peace is his grace. And his grace is his glory. And God has designed the life of discipleship to be a life of peace that is filled with His grace and that leads us from glory to
the glory, as we grow in the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, because it comes by God's grace. It's God's gift. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here in verses 1 and 2, it says, By which you are being saved, in verse 2, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. The words hold fast in the Greek, they mean to occupy something. They mean to possess something. They mean to hold something fast. But there's a really interesting use of the Greek word that I just want to bring out to you because I think it really helps you to understand the scripture and how faith works. What is faith? You know, faith is faithfulness. Faith is trust. When you trust someone, you hold fast to that person. You stay with that person through thick and thin. When you don't trust somebody and things get bad, well, you don't want to be with that person because you're not sure if they'll stab you in the back. But when you trust in Jesus, you stay with him. You follow him. You hold fast to the gospel. You hold fast to the truth that has been preached to us. So the interesting uh, aspect or meaning of this word is it's also used as a nautical term, you know, for sailing. And as a nautical term, this word means to steer towards something, to steer towards something that you can't even see. Because you know that if you're out on a ship and you're on the ocean or you're on a vast sea or you're even on a big lake, you can't exactly see where it is you're supposed to go, be going. And in ancient times, of course, they wouldn't know that by, by a compass. They'd know that by signs that are in the sky, by stars at night. You would know it by the sun during the day. In fact, in the book of Acts, we read about a, uh, when, when Paul is shipwrecked, that the storm became so bad, the darkness was, the clouds were so thick that during the day it was dark and during the night it was dark and they got completely lost because they could not see where they were going because they could not see the sun by day and they could not see the stars by night. And so this is an interesting term because it shows us what it means to really have faith, that our eyes are fixed on the stars and on the sun of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we actually know where we are going. There is a goal to our faith. We're not just paddling a boat going around in circles. We're heading toward a specific and a certain goal, and that goal is the glory of God. We want to see in our lives as disciples that we are growing in His glory as a church, in our families, in our personal lives. And this is impossible unless we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because he is our rabbi. He is our teacher. He is the one that we assimilate the truth from. We gain this truth from him. And it's impossible to walk in this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See, you might have that personal relationship in the sense that, yes, you've been justified by faith. But if you ever try following Jesus without staying in his word, you know it's completely impossible. <laughs> that the life of a disciple is a life of daily following the word of God. 
This is our stars. These are our stars. These, are our, these words are our sun. This is how we see and how we know where we're going. Is there a goal to our faith? And then at the end of verse 2, it says, unless you believed in vain. Well, is it possible to believe in vain? Is it possible to have faith in vain? So again, there's an interesting word here where it's translated as in vain here in verse 2. Usually the Greek here would mean just that, in in vain or empty. But here it it has a little bit of a different meaning. It's a Greek word, eki, and it means at random, with no goal in sight, for no objective reason. Now listen to me carefully. I really believe that there are many people who are living as... Christians, and they they truly believe in the Lord Jesus. But they don't really have any goal in sight. They're Christians at random. (laughs) Like somebody just threw the dice, and I was born into a Christian family, and my parents took me to church, and so I'm a Christian. Or like I remember one time I had a friend when I was growing up. Uh, His name was Eric. He was one of my really good friends. And they were Episcopalians. I'm not going to talk bad about Episcopalians, but they were Episcopalians. His family was. Dr. Mims and their whole family were Episcopalians. And when I was in high school, we were having this revival in our uh, school and in our church. And uh, I invited him to, to go with me to one of these meetings. And he came to the meeting, and yes, there was a cute girl involved with him coming also. That's usually the case with teenage boys. And that's okay. Jesus uses cute girls to get teenage boys saved. And um, her name was JC. I remember her too. And he came to the, to the meetings. But, you know, he really gave his heart to Jesus that night. And he's, he's passed away since. Um, but, you know... As much as I had contact with him over the years, and we did stay in contact, I know that that meant something to him, and I really know that he's with Jesus today. You know, it, his life was changed then. He, he, he followed the Lord uh, from that day forward. Well, you know, he told his parents about this, and I was in the room, and his parents got furious. They were not happy about this, and they said this statement that I'll never forget. <laughs> they said, you are an American, Eric an Episcopalian, and that means you are already a Christian. And I remember thinking, how many people think they're a Christian because they were born in America? Or they think they they are a Christian because they were born uh, into the Yarrington Vineyard uh, Fellowship, or into the Episcopalian, or into the Baptist, or into the Methodist, or the Lutheran, whatever you want to say. Or they think they're a Christian because when they were a baby, they were Christian. Or when they were a baby, they were baptized. And that's wonderful. It's wonderful to dedicate a baby to the Lord. It's wonderful. But it's a whole other thing when Jesus appears to you personally. And you receive him as your personal Lord and your Savior. That that truth isn't something that's just being preached, but it's a truth that you receive in your life. This is my truth. This is my Lord. This is my Savior. We looked at Thomas. You remember doubting Thomas. And after Jesus appeared and said, thrust your hand into my side, put your finger into these wounds, that he said, my Lord and my God. That's the confession of real faith. 
So, I think it's good for us to judge ourselves. Are we going somewhere by faith? Or are we just spinning our wheels, just driving our boat around in circles, just being Christians because we want to get to heaven someday? Or do we have a path and a goal for our faith? And that goal and that path needs to be one of following the glory of God. So how, do, how does that even look in our lives? Well, as we follow Jesus, he reveals things to our, us in our lives, things that he wants us to be obedient in. He puts a call on our lives. He gives us uh, specific jobs to do, things to do, places to go. After he raised up from the dead, he said to his disciples before his uh, ascension to the Father, if, if, you don't need, if, if there's nothing else, just take this general great commission that he gave. And everything fits inside of that, because that's the ultimate goal. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go you, therefore, and make disciples of every nation. So first he says, I have all authority. And when he says, go you, that means that he's commissioning us with his authority to go. And we may be doctors, we may be lawyers, we may be farmers, we may be working the ditches in Yarrington, whatever our job may be in life. That's just a, 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 a tool or a vessel for us to be uh, uh, disciples of Jesus, a place where we can work and we can serve uh, as fathers, as mothers, as grandparents, as children, students in school, wherever we may be, to take the gospel to this world, to make disciples of other people. So we go from glory to glory simply by being obedient to him. I don't want you to get into your mind that going from glory to glory means that once a, week, once a year you go to some really cool Bible conference or uh, have some, some good revival meetings or prophetic meetings and you get this really happy feeling, okay? Because happy feelings come and happy feelings go. But it's by growing and being obedient to the Lord. It says concerning Jesus that when he was 12 years old, he was in the temple. His parents lost him. They can't find him. You know that story. And when they find him, he says to them, did you not know that I would be in the middle of my father's business? I would be busy doing what my father is doing. And then it says after that, that when he went home, that he continued to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Well, that's a really good picture of what it means to go from glory to glory, to have a goal for our faith. So he grows in the area of his soul. He grows in the area of his mind, his understanding, his learning. He studies to show himself approved. It says he grows in wisdom. He grows physically. God wants to bless our physical bodies. God wants us to prosper. He wants us to be in health. He wants us to have the strength all the way to the, to the last day of our lives to be able to do in our physical bodies what he's called us to do. So Jesus grows in wisdom. That's his soul. He grows in stature. That's his physical body. Okay? And he grows in favor. That's grace. That's spiritual growth. He grows in favor with God and with man. Not everybody liked him, <laughs> but he had favor with men because he had favor with God. Because he was not focused on having favor with men, but on favor with God. God gives him favor with men. 
And this is growing from glory to glory. So now look, at, look with me at verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15. It says in verse 3, for I, so he's, he's pointing out, making known to us the truth of this gospel. And he says, for I delivered to you, you received it, I delivered it to you. I delivered to you as of first importance, the first and most important thing in your life. Please get this settled in your life that nothing matters in comparison with the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter how much money you make, no matter how big your house is or your cars, and if you get it all paid off and you finally retire and you don't owe anybody any money and you can just golf or hunt or fish or whatever it is you want to do, you're still not going to take any of that with you when you die. And you will die. Every one of us will die unless Jesus comes back first and you won't take it with you then either because you will be changed. What you'll take with you is this glory. What you take with you is this grace. What you take with you is this peace. What you take with you are all those whom you have helped to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Your witness you take with you. So I delivered this to you as of first importance. What I also received. So he said, I received it, just in exactly the way I described to you this receiving, and then I delivered it to you. It's this process of discipleship. It's a process of parenting, okay? And then you receive it so that you can deliver it to others. So I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And this is what I delivered to you. And oh, how simple it is. It's just too simple. But here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to to the scriptures so these are the essentials of the gospel and the truth is you you can say it in a thousand different ways if you want to but there's really nothing else that a person needs to receive in their life in order to be saved it's so simple you don't need to memorize the ten commandments it's good for you to it's good for you to know them you don't have to memorize every verse in the bible but you need to know, not know it mentally. See, there's, faith is not mental assent. Faith is not agreeing that that's true mentally. Faith is receiving it in your heart, and it becomes a part of you, and it's what you live by. But it's knowing this in your heart, believing this really in your heart, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, and all of this says according to the scriptures look with me for a minute at first corinthians 11 today we're receiving communion and listen to what paul says here in first corinthians 11:23 he says for i received from the lord that which i also delivered to you that the lord jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So Paul says here that I received this gospel from the Lord. He makes a point. He says it in other places also to tell us that he did not receive this from Peter. He did not receive it from James. He did not receive it from John. He received it from the Lord according to the scriptures. We don't know exactly how his revelation came, you know, in, in the sense of, you know, how, many, how often he read the scripture and what happened, all the little details of it. But we know this when we put together his testimony. That after the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he, he says to him, Who are you, Lord? He knows that this is the Lord, but he doesn't know his name. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Right? So he receives Jesus. Then he receives his sight again in three days. He receives the Holy Spirit. And the scripture tells us that he went out into Arabia, out into the desert, for like three years. And somehow during that three years, in studying the scripture, because he says, according to the scripture, Paul's a rabbi. You know, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's got some scrolls with him. And, you know, I'm not saying that he's sitting on the sand somewhere. He's kind of get this idea of like in a monastery or something. Although they didn't have monasteries back then, of course. But, you know, he's somewhere out there in the middle of nowhere. And he refuses to talk to anybody. He's just talking to God. He's talking to Jesus. And the Lord's revealing to him from the scripture this revelation. So he says, I received this from the Lord. I didn't get this because I read the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I received this from the Lord. And then he tells us about the bread and about the cup. And then he says that when you eat the body of the Lord and you drink the cup of the new covenant, that you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, you preach the gospel. You reveal by your witness the truth of the gospel to other people. And if you think that this is something uh, esoteric, it's something uh, that doesn't have any uh, touch with reality in our lives, it doesn't really relate to me in my everyday life or something, well, you read on. And you read on in there in verse 30, uh, when he says that people who do this but don't examine themselves, they put on the mask, and, and this is true for the, for, the, for the communion that we're receiving today. But that communion extends beyond what we're receiving today. It's true for our whole Christian life. When we wear a mask of Christianity, we have a faith, but we don't have any goal to that faith. We just call ourselves Christians for whatever reason. We don't even know why, okay? He says that over time, we do not honor the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this can be true when we refuse to forgive other people and we bear a grudge against them because we are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we do not honor one another, when we do not respect one another as husbands and wives and our families, whatever. Over time, if we continue to dishonor the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, we eat and drink in a manner that's not worthy, it says. And in verse 30, it tells us there's a very practical uh, result to this. It says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. You've actually died. So that actually tells us that when we eat and drink in a manner that's worthy, 
When we do this, and this is really our Christian life, we're really disciples following after Jesus in our lives, that we don't get sick and we don't physically die. That God wants to bless us in our bodies and in our soul and in our spirit because he wants us to grow and go from glory to glory. So it's not just something that's one Sunday a month. It's something that truly is our life. It's how we live and by what we live. So he says, all of this was according to the scriptures. This is how Paul received it, and it's how we receive it also. In fact, I don't know if you've ever thought of this. When you received the truth of the gospel, you did not actually receive that from some pastor or some family member or whoever it was that first shared Jesus with you. You actually received that directly from Paul, Peter, and these apostles that wrote the New Testament because it came to you through the Scriptures. Okay? Someone else just told you the Scripture. They told you the Word of God. So we are direct recipients. They are the disciples of Jesus, the first ones, and then they introduce us to Jesus, and we are in the same fellowship with them. Read 1 John chapter 1 at the very beginning. John says, I want you to have the same fellowship that we have with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that we would walk in that same fellowship. So now look at verse 5. Verse 5 here. So... He says, this is the truth of the gospel, that according to the scriptures, he died, he was buried, and he raised on the third day. But that's not the end. Then it becomes something very personal. It says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep means that they've already died. So what he's saying here is that after the resurrection of Jesus, in that 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, that he appeared to many more people than we read about in the Gospels. And Paul knows this because these people are still alive and they talk about it and everybody in the church knows it. This is the only time that we read this number, 500. But Paul says that he appeared to up to 500 people. Honestly, according to the law of Moses, it would have been enough for two or three witnesses to say we've seen Jesus alive, for that fact to be established. Because the scripture says that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. But he had way more than two or three witnesses that proved that he was alive. And they were still speaking this at the time that 1 Corinthians was written which is some 20-something years later. They're still alive, and they're going all around telling everyone, we not only hear that Jesus is alive, we actually saw him with our own eyes. We touched him, we had dinner with him, they were eating fish together, all these things. And he says that there were more than 500 of them. That he got, he, he had more, when Jesus showed up at that congregation of 500 people, think about it, that was like five times as many people fit in this church. I mean, this was a big congregation, and Jesus appears to all 500 of them. We know in Acts chapter 1 that he appears, and he's talking to the disciples, and there's 120 of them gathered together then at, at that time. So he says, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom re remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, uh, uh, so he appears to Cephas, that's Peter, then to more than 500, then to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, this is the part I want you to focus on, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The only question that really matters in the life of each one of us is this. Has he appeared to me personally also? You see, Paul was chosen by God to be the closest thing possible to us, I think. Because the sin of Paul, I promise you, was much worse as people count sin, was much more evil than anything that any one of you have ever done in your lives or ever will do. Paul, when he was called Saul, was the equivalent of Osama bin Laden. I'm not, I'm not joking. He was a religious terrorist. He wasn't doing what he did for money. Probably got paid pretty good for it, but that's not why he did it. He wasn't doing what he was doing for prestige or so he could be elected president. He was doing what he was doing because he really believed that God wanted him to murder Christians. He really believed that it was a right and a just thing that Jesus had been crucified because he saw Jesus as a blasphemer, as an anti-Christ, if you will, who was trying to stop the, the, the work of God. He believed in his religion. He believed in his heart. And he took it to the radical extreme. And he imprisoned men, women, and children. And he stood there at the stoning of Stephen and held the coats of everyone that threw the stones. Do you know how evil that is? It's one thing to throw the stones, but it's another thing that you wouldn't even pick up the stone yourself, but you would encourage this riot, this mob to do it. You're the real evil behind the mob. Do you understand? And Paul knows this about himself, and he has to live with that, but he doesn't live with guilt. That's so amazing. He lives with peace, he lives with grace, and he lives with glory because Jesus appeared to him also that he appeared to me also. And Paul says here that I was like one untimely born. The word in Greek means a miscarriage, an aborted child. He says, I was a, an abortion. I'm an anomaly. I'm something so abnormal that even though I was a miscarriage, somehow I lived. Now, the interesting thing about this is most scholars believe that he's kind of making a play on words here, that his enemies referred to him as an aborted or miscarried child, you know, because he had a lot of enemies. He's not one of us. He's one of the bad guys, you know, and everything. You know, Paul really wasn't very popular or liked very much by, by the religious establishment. But he takes that term to himself and says, I am actually a miscarried child. But Jesus is the one who did the miscarriage. Jesus is the one who aborted me. 
and gave me a new life. I was on the proverbial highway to hell, and Jesus literally aborted me out of the kingdom of Satan and caused me to be born again into the kingdom of God. He gave me a completely new life, and the person that I used to be, he's dead, completely dead. And I'm alive today in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. And all of this happened because he appeared to me personally. When Jesus Christ appears personally in our lives, he gives us peace. He fills us with his grace and he leads us into glory. We are introduced into this grace. We are introduced into this glory by faith, simply by trusting in Jesus. In the Old Testament time and in the New Testament times, and to this day in Orthodox uh, Judaism, they had a term. It's not really Hebrew, it's Aramaic, and usually we say Shekinah, if you've ever been around some of these meetings, but probably is more pronounced Shekinah. And, in, and usually, if you've ever, has anybody ever heard that term, Shekinah? We refer it to the, to the glory of God. So what it actually is, it, mean, it basically means a tent, okay? It's the dwelling place of God. And it's one of the ways that the Hebrews, the way, one of the ways that the rabbis would then and still to this day uh, talk about God and his presence, his appearance, his, the manifestation of God on the earth. And you remember in the Old Testament that during the time of Moses, that as they're going through the wilderness, that they are being led by day by a pillar of cloud, right? And at nighttime, they're led by a pillar of fire. And wherever the pillar of cloud or fire stops, on that place they would build their tent. And they would set up the tabernacle. And that cloud and that fire would rest over the tabernacle. And it's called the tabernacle, it's really interesting because it's called the tabernacle of the congregation. Well, when I use the word congregation anyway, I kind of think of more than one pe- person, right? Because a congregation refers to a lot of people that are gathered together. It's called the tabernacle of the congregation, but the scripture tells us that nobody would go there because they were too afraid. And the only person who would go would be Moses. And then we find out later that Joshua would go with him also. And when Moses would get up to go into the tabernacle, of the congregation, he would go into the presence of God, where the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire is. And it said that all the heads of the families, they would stand at their tents and watch him go by. So they were happy that he was going, but they were too afraid to go themselves. So Moses has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But the people have a relationship through Moses, not personally. But God's desire is for everyone to have this personal relationship. And so it says that Moses would speak with God face to face, like a man talks to his friend. He looked God right in the eyes. He spoke to God, and God spoke to him, and they were friends. What a beautiful description of the relationship that God wants us to have with him individually. Not through your pastor, not through some great prophet somewhere, but individually, a personal relationship with Jesus. That's really what it means to be saved. And this is this tent, this Shekinah, the tent of his presence and of his glory. So go with me, 
Real quickly over to Acts chapter 1. We're moving up toward the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 1, we read at the very beginning, Acts 1, 1, Luke is writing and he writes this first account, I composed Theophilus, which by the way means friend of God, so you can receive that for yourself. This is written for you. About all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's talking about the gospel of Luke. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. It's the Holy Spirit, which he said, You heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So notice that Jesus presented himself alive to them. Paul said, and then last of all, he appeared to me. And he presented himself alive to every one of the disciples. So let me ask you this question. Has Jesus presented himself alive to you personally with many convincing proofs? Are there things personally in your life that you can give testimony to to say, I know that Jesus is alive because he proved it to me when he delivered me from this, when he delivered me from that, when he healed me of this, he healed me of that, he gave me peace in this time when nobody had peace, he did this, 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 this. I know there are, because I've heard your testimonies from many of you, and many of you have never said anything, but it's obvious in your lives that he has presented himself alive to you by many convincing proofs. And so that means that you have been justified with God by faith. And that means you've been introduced into his grace. And so what he's calling for us now is for us to go, grow in that grace and go forward and move from glory to glory. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, if you go over there for a minute, in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Without spending too much time on the details here, this is that pillar of cloud. This is that tornado of God that they would see during the day. You know, I always think of that when I see these dust devils around here. Now, now God's isn't filled with dust. It's filled with glory. But, you know, it just comes up right out of the desert, just right in front of your eyes. You don't even know when it's going to happen, and there it is. And sometimes they're like pillars. They go way up. But, you know, this was a pillar of cloud, a rushing mighty wind. And wherever that cloud was, they knew that this is where God is. And the cloud rested over the tabernacle, over the place of God's house. So there comes to them. Where does it come? It comes to their little church. There's 120 people gathered together. And suddenly... They see something, they hear something, they feel something. There's a sound. It's like this booming, rushing, mighty wind. And 
to every Jewish mind, and they're all Jews, they know what this is. This is not written here by accident. This is the pillar of cloud. This is God's presence. God showed up in our church. Now, for us, we get really jaded by saying things like that all the time, you know, and because it's true. We're Christians. Wherever two or more of us are gathered together in his name, he's there in our midst. But please don't forget that for centuries, for millennia, people gathered together in the name of the Lord, and he was not there in their midst. Even after they died, Jesus told, tells us that they would go to the bosom of Abraham, which was actually uh, right across the street from hell. Okay, But it was a good place, but they had to wait there in the bosom of Abraham because Jesus had not come and had not given his life yet for them to be taken up to heaven into the presence of God. We have it really good is what I'm trying to tell you. And we take it all so for granted. We so don't appreciate what we have. So on that day, they realized, wow, we came to church and God showed up. God is here in our midst. So it says that it was a, came from heaven, a noise. Is this still on, by the way? It is just barely. Maybe the battery's died. But let's just pick this up. How's that? Is this on? Okay, so this is on. So suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Everyone. Men, women, children, everybody. The ones that just came to church because their parents made them. The ones that had been Christians for 40 years. You know, it doesn't matter. It filled the whole house because they showed up. As the old preachers used to say, they got under the spout where the glory comes out. So you get the blessing. If you're standing in the shower when that spout comes on, you get wet. Sometimes you just have to be faithful enough to say yes to God to get to where he wants you to be. Not sometimes, all the time. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the pillar of cloud comes, and then the pillar of fire. And get this, when the pillar of fire comes, that in the Old Testament was only in one spot, it distributes itself onto the head of every single one of those 120 people that are there. That's New Testament Christianity, that God lives in me. He lives in you. That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a holy thing. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in our hearts. This is just a simple message. It's a simple message of Jesus died physically. His body, he died. He was buried physically. And he raised from the dead physically. Who was that? Olivia Newton-John? Let's get physical. Was that her? I don't know. It just popped into my head. My sister used to listen to her. If our Christianity doesn't get physical, it's not Christianity. Real Christianity is to love your neighbor as yourself. To take this gospel to people. To live this out in our lives. Okay? And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to end here in verse, verses 10 and 11. 
It says, but by the grace of God, that's the title of the message, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. His grace is not an empty promise. His grace has a specific goal in mind. Does our faith have a specific goal in mind? Have we believed in vain? That's what the, the, the paragraph starts out with. Because his grace is not in vain. It has a specific goal in mind. It's not an empty promise. And the goal of God's grace is to fill my life with his peace, to work through me, to make other people disciples of Jesus Christ, and to lead us all from glory to glory into the fullness of the kingdom of his glory. So he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, that, that should probably be hanging on the wall somewhere in your office or your home. It should definitely be hanging on the wall of your heart. I am what I am by the grace of God. I don't have to prove myself to anybody else. I don't have to try to put on a mask to pretend like I'm somebody else. But I have to allow God to take me from glory to glory. By his grace, I am what I am. He says, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, all the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So I want to leave you with this final thought of Paul's here. That the grace of God labored alongside me. Have you ever thought in your life that grace is, is working with you? That it's working with you? That you have this engine of God's grace if you will you have this power of God's grace working in your life and so you don't have to be afraid to be obedient to God because you know that you can't do it without his grace but his grace is always there his gift is always there his glory and his peace are always working in your lives so Paul says that the grace of God labored alongside of me the grace and I, we're like partners. We're working together, okay? And that grace is working inside of me. Look at Philippians chapter 2. These are verses you know, but I just want to end by reading this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, So then, my beloved, Philippians 2, 12, Just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is at work in you. And he works in you by his grace. And his work is to work out your salvation. So you have the salvation, but he wants to flesh it out in your lives. He wants it to become so practical that it actually works in your life. And that it brings blessing to your life, to your family, to all of those around you as we grow in this grace. And he says that it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's really important. Because, you know, God really does care about what we feel also. Oftentimes we think as Christians, well, God doesn't care about what I feel. He just wants me to be obedient whether I feel like it or not. And 
at some childhood level, I think there's some truth in that because ultimately every parent who needs their child to do something, go to school or whatever it is they need to do, whether they feel like it or not, you're just going to go to school because that's what you need to do, right? But that's not the goal of parenting children, is it? As parents, what your dream is, is that your children will go to a place where they want to do that because you know they're not going to live at home forever. <laughs> and so you want them to learn to love to learn. Does that make sense? So that when they grow up, they don't stop learning, but they continue to learn and be successful in life. And God wants that in us. He works on our will, both to will and to do. He cares about our feelings. He cares about our motivations. The Holy Spirit is at work on the inside of us by the grace of God that we would begin to feel the things that God feels. But this, again, never happens in our lives if we don't dwell and abide in his words. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you will ask whatever it is you want and it will be done for you. Why? Because when you abide, so important, when you abide in Jesus and his words actually abide in you, to abide means they are in you every day. You know, if somebody abides somewhere, they've made that their abode. That's their home. That's where they live. Then suddenly the things you ask for, he says, you ask whatever you want. But the things you want aren't the same things they were before his words abided in you, are they? Now suddenly you want the things God wants. So you're not asking for stupid stuff. <laughs> you're asking for the things God wants because his words abide in you. And so you ask whatever you want and he will do it for you. That's the grace of God working together with us, that we are partners together with Jesus. We're partners together with the Lord. And in chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians, it says that he who has begun this good work in you, that he will perfect it until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a process of growing and going from glory to glory. I believe that as a church, we are at this place where we're being challenged to grow. We're being challenged to grow, not in the sense of get more people to come to church. That's just the result of spiritual growth on the inside of us. We're being challenged to make disciples, being challenged to face up to new challenges. Can you be challenged? about challenges yeah so face up to new challenges new things that uh, are happening in the world today and not lose the vision that God has given us but to go from glory to glory by faith as we grow in grace and walk in his faith by faith if you would say this morning well I don't think Jesus has ever appeared to me or ever presented himself to me with even one single proof then I would ask you this morning to open your heart and say, Jesus, I want to see you. I want to see you in my life. Prove yourself to me. If you would say this morning that, yeah, there was a time when I really saw Jesus in my life. There was a time when that really meant something to me. But it's been years. I've gotten so far away from his presence. Then turn your heart back to him immediately today you'll find him waiting for you he wants to prove himself in our lives i think sometimes that we see so few miracles 
because we don't try to do anything in obedience to God. Miracles don't happen when we're sitting on our hands. Miracles happen and manifestations of power come when we obey him and we go out there where he's sending us to go, doing what he's calling us to do. Amen? So I'm going to have the worship team come up here right now, and we're going to have a word of prayer. And then I'll invite the servers to come up, the ministers to come up and help us serve communion this morning also. Father, I just thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the truth of the gospel that has been delivered to us in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that the grace that comes together with the truth, that's grace and truth, they're like sisters that work together in our lives, Lord. That as we believe in this truth and we trust in this truth, Lord, that your grace would work together with us and accomplish all that you will, all that you desire, and all that you are doing in our lives to bring us into still greater glory, that we would be closer to you, Lord Jesus. Glorify, I pray, Lord, our families. Glorify, I pray, Lord, our children, our grandchildren. Lord, I just personally, I lift my children, all of them, the grown-up ones, the ones that are still at home, all the grandchildren up to you, Lord, great-grandchildren that haven't even been born yet, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would glorify my home because I know you personally in my life. As each one of us turn to you personally, Lord, that you would fill our lives and our homes with your glory and with your presence, Lord, that we would not have a faith that is in vain, a faith that's just chasing its own tail around, not going anywhere, but we would begin to get busy going with you, following you by faith, Lord, being your disciples as we follow after you. And I ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We so hope you enjoyed the message. Communion Before you sir. leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvinionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast. 